So this is Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Clock with my Tuesday morning Bible study as we continue our study in the book of Exodus, chapter 33, verse 12. So um, it's important to know that prophets have a tendency to have conversation with God, pleading the case of the people. Um, a lot of times, actually, and, and a lot of times we look at this in the Hebrew Bible, it's, uh, I think sometimes we get the wrong idea. Like it's, some sometimes people look at it as a sense of weakness. Uh, sometimes people look at it as a, it's a human thing. But in reality, it's a worship thing. When, when you think about when you plead with God, where do you do that? In prayer. In prayer. Um, and I think one of the beautiful parts that takes place in the Hebrew Bible is, is this idea that our, our, our superheroes, our, our, our big-time people, also pray. And not just for themselves, but on behalf of others. Abraham does it, you know, uh, just you see Elijah do it, you see Jeremiah do it, Isaiah does it. Uh, three different times for three different people. Um, and then in Exodus, Moses does it several times, but most of the time there's a conversation between God and Moses that's a little one-sided. So God speaks, Moses does. Here, this is an interesting experience where God, uh, Moses pleads with God on behalf of people. So here we, here we go. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, lead these people forward, but you have not made known to me whom you will send with me. Further, you have said, I have singled you out by name, and you have indeed gained my favor. Now, if I have truly gained your favor, uh, pray, let me know your ways, that I may know you and continue in your favor. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, I will go in the lead and will lighten your burden. And he said to him, unless you go in the lead, do not let us, do not make us leave this place. For how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us, so that we may be distinguished, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth? And then God responds, I will also do this thing that you have asked. For you, you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name. He said, and oh, let me behold your presence. And he answered, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will pro proclaim before you the name Lord, and the grace that I grant, and the compassion that I show. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man may not see me and live. And the Lord said, see, there is a place near me. Station yourself on the rock, and as my presence passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So this is a beautiful image. Um, <clears throat> this, uh, this idea of God walking amongst us is not a new thing, um, but the idea that God walks past Moses just enough that Moses feels his presence, and, and, and God gives him the ability to look at his back, but not his face. And this is, this is where, you know, I've said this before to you all, that in the Hebrew Bible, you can't see God. Like, if you see God, you will die. This, this is the beginning of that, that legend, this idea that God is uh, not allowed to be seen. 
<clears throat> so what's your first reaction to this passage? I mean, it might be a little early for this. It's okay. I say it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Had Moses not felt God in the mountain? Uh, it's a great question. I, I would say that Moses knew God was there. Uh, but it's just like us, you know, we want to, we want to feel the presence of human beings. Um, well, sometimes we just need reassurance. Yeah. That's what that, that does. It, there's a reassurance that comes from knowing that they're there, but they don't have to be there. I, I, I think the best example I can think of is this idea that you're playing on a football field and you know that your parents are in the stands. You don't have to see them. You don't even have to go look at them or wave at them, but you know that they're there. Um, I, I think this, this passage is beautiful and visceral in that sense that Moses felt God's presence, but never knew that he was physically there, uh, if that makes any sense. And in this passage, he knows and saw the back of him as he walks away. That, to me, is always a cool imagery. And I guess when he was up on the mountain, there was a cloud around God. Right, right, right. There was a cloud around God the whole time. Um, and, and God never made himself visible. Uh, the Hebrew scholars struggle with the idea of, of um, him being seen in the burning bush. Like rabbinical scholars um, struggle with that idea that God is in the bush. Like the fire is God, more of the presence of God, not that God is fire. I, I know that's I'm being semantic. The voice here. speaks, but it right. doesn't say God is in the fire. Right, right. But Christians, uh, a lot of Christians in the 20th century want to say, well, that was God in the bush. Well, the, the presence of God was in the bush, but God was not the actual fire in the bush. Does that make sense? That's a big deal. That's a big distinction. You see this a lot in the 20th century that God is portrayed as the voice in the fire. Um, so that's that's interesting. But that's not this at all. Like God, uh, oh, I also, I got to point out the point that that God knew Moses by name. Do, do, you, do you remember the significance of that? We talked you a little bit. name, there's control there or there's... Uh -huh. I have power over. Ah. Uh, God gives the ability for Adam and Adama to name the animals. And from that point on, they have power and dominion over them. It becomes their mm -hmm. responsibility. This is the and then part. God says that. And then God says that. You now have the power and responsibility to take care of these animals. This is... Not the way we teach it. Most of the time we teach it and Adam names Eve and he, and the rabbinical scholars then says basically when Adam names Eve, he now has power and dominion over her and she is not to be ruled over, but it is Adam's responsibility to take care of Eve, just like Adam and Eve's responsibility is to take care of the animals. So if God says he knows Moses by name, mm -hmm. 
then and then and Moses doesn't know God's name. God has power and dominion over Moses, and it's his responsibility to make sure that Moses leads the people. Does that make sense? That's a big deal. So power and authority <clears throat> are completely different than power and responsibility. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. In the Hebrew culture, uh, authority is only given to you by the power in charge, right? So at this time, when this is being written, I mean, you're looking at, this is Babylonian? Yeah, this is, they're, they're I think they're in the, in, underneath the boot hill of the Babylonian Empire. So authority means uh, I'm in charge of everything that happens within my eyesight. Uh, responsibility is completely different because it's a familial thing. Like I, I'm responsible for my children. I'm responsible for my family. That doesn't change. So you, under authority, you can have responsibility, but under responsibility doesn't necessarily mean you have authority. That's right. Yeah. And that's always been translated wrong. Like when you talk about specifically in the roles of man and wife, mm -hmm. right? Like the, the translation has always been uh, man shall uh, rule over their household or be ahead of the household is the language. Well, yes, but in the Hebrew culture, it means that that person is not to be the authority. They have the responsibility to raise these people in the faith, to make sure their family practices Torah. What it was translated as in the 20th century was, well, no, this, this gives credence that the man is where the buck stops. The, the man makes all these decisions. That's not biblical at all. Like that's, but that's, that's cultural. You see this all the way from the Roman Empire on that the man was the head of the household. They made all the decisions. I mean, the name Potter Familius comes, you know, that, that's, that's not a, it's not a catchphrase, but the biblical understanding is you don't have authority over these people, that you have the responsibility for these people. So yeah, that's a, that's a big, big distinction. And I glad we caught that here because um, this is what God is talking about. here. And, and look at that kind of what it does to them culturally. You know, if you, if you go beyond the empire or those that have authority over you, um, it, it changes everything. I mean, like from that point on, when they get captured by the Persians or the Assyrians, you know, there's a, the language changes with the prophets. Uh, we can't we can't change who's in charge of us. They who have authority over us, but we can change what we have responsibilities over. Um, and I'm and I'm. I feel comfortable enough that I can say that that's, I'm not stretching that translation from Hebrew to English. Now, the problem with this is in Greek, we don't have that. <laughs> we don't have this conversation between responsibility and authority in Greek. Because in the Greek world, <clears throat> authority is authority. I mean, the Romans are in charge. You all are welcome to survive in that world, whether you like it or not. That's just all there is to it. And the Greeks have always looked at it that way. So when Hellenism became a thing, they were under Alexander. And after Alexander dies, you know, it's all of the, the people that followed underneath him. So there was, the Greeks really don't have to worry about responsibility. They just have to make sure they stay alive. Like that's a, that's a big difference. So I'm, I'm making a mountain out of the molehill 
because the translation problem that you have with the Septuagint adds the word authority. Hmm. Whereas when you're translating it from Hebrew into English, I would argue that you could swap that word with responsibility hmm. very easily because it's all about the family. It's all about the community in the Jewish world, <clears throat> which is countercultural to those who have their boot heel on them. So, wow, I didn't, that was not a rabbit trail. That was a big <laughs> That was a big conversation. And you can see how, how God's setting this up. God is setting this up so that Moses, as he says these things, he's, he's I need to know who I'm in charge of. Did you all catch that? Tell me who I'm really actually supposed to take. And God says, well, I'll take care of that for you. <laughs> cool. How? <laughs> um. And so, so Moses taking this responsibility of, and in some aspects, being in charge of, uh, God enables him to be, um, their language would probably be ruler. And that's why he says, call the Lord. You know, this is, this is a big, big deal. So this is a, this is a big deal. Um, anything else before we keep going? Because now we're going to carve the tablets again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a fit, Moses. All right, here we go. So the Lord said to Moses, carve two tablets of stone like the first, and I will inscribe upon them the tablets, the words that were on the first tablets, which you shed. <laughs> Be ready by morning, and in the morning, come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one else shall come up with you, and no one else shall be seen anywhere on the mountain. Neither shall the flocks and the herds graze at the foot of the mountain. So Moses carved two tablets of stone like the first, and early in the morning he went up on the Mount Sinai, and the Lord, as the Lord had commanded him, taking the two stone tablets with him, the Lord came down in a cloud. He stood with them there. And proclaimed the name Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed <clears throat> the Lord, the Lord, twice. You see how that worked? The Lord is the Lord, is what really should say. Uh, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he does not remit all punishment, but visits the iniquity of parents upon children and children's children and upon the third and fourth generations. <clears throat> Moses hastened to bow low to the ground in homage and said, If I have gained your favor, O Lord, pray, let the Lord go in our midst. Even though, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, even though this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your own. He said, I hereby make a covenant before all your people, and will work with such wonders as have not been wrought on all the earth or any nation. And all the people who are with you shall see how awesome are the Lord's deeds, which I will perform for you. Mark well what I command you this day, and here it comes. So now... Now we have to have a conversation about where they're going to go. And the Levitical priests are now making claims on land is what's going to happen here. Um, so by saying this, they said, I'm going to, I'm going to drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, 
the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Beware of making a covenant with the inhabitants of the land which, with which you are advancing, lest they be a snare in your midst. No, you must tear down their altars, smash their pillars, and cut down their sacred posts. For you must not worship any other god, because the Lord, whose name is impassioned, is an impassioned god. What does your translation say? Jealous. Jealous god. You must not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, for they will lust after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and invite you, uh, and you will eat of their sacrifices. And when you take wives from among their daughters for your sons, their daughters will lust after their gods and will cause your sons to lust after their gods. Remember, this is a conversation that talks about Abraham's family, right? Was it Jacob that, um, or was it Isaac? Ham. Ham. All of those people are Ham's. Oh, yeah, sons. they're all his sons. But I'm trying to remember, wasn't it, was it Isaac's wife that had the, the the alt the the gods the statues inside for camel's bag. Oh, oh, oh! It was, it was Isaac or Jacob's kid wife. No, it's got to be Isaac because Isaac had to marry the two. Yeah, Isaac married the two. He had to work hard for one. It was the baby. <laughs> baby yeah. out of those twelve. Well, that would have been Benjamin. Yeah. He's the one that he saw took stuff a daughter of Ishmael. Yeah. Yeah. So Ishmael and Ham. It's Jacob that had Leah and Rachel. Rachel. Okay. So it's yeah. Jacob. <clears throat> so if you remember, when they're leaving the house, Jacob takes the kids and the wives, and they take their household gods with them and hide them in the bag. And then and they say they can't get off the camel because it's their time of life. That's exactly right. <laughs> so this is literally in re reference to that. You cannot take your own. They can't take their gods with them. Once we've destroyed them, they're done. God has to be God. But they didn't destroy them. So they did destroy them. This is and this <laughs> is supposed to be. I wouldn't call it a joke, but it, it's a recognition of past transgression. <laughs> This is, it's either you are, you either you believe in the one true God or you don't. <clears throat> and if you don't, then don't try. Like, this is a big deal. Uh, this is, this is a countercultural argument that they're making. Yeah, so it's Jacob. It was Lee and Rachel had their stuff, took the household gods with them. They get caught on the road because their dad says, you stole our stuff. And, and, and it's just a whole story. I think story. it's Rachel. Yeah, I think it's Rachel. I think you're right. So, so this is what they're talking about. We take over these villages. We're going to marry one of these women. But if we have women, uh, if we have children, those children have to not know. They just can't know about the previous gods of these households that served. Is this making sense? No. <laughs> I do have a question. Yeah. It kind of goes along with... Uh... I guess verse number seven, yeah, where it says, "But visit the inequities of parents be upon children and children's children from the third and fourth generation." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the is the is that still true today, or or is those words the third and fourth generation just Old Testament stuff and Jesus? It's, it's the New a, Testament. It's like a it's like a cliche. 
You know, when you say that you've inherited your father's sins, mm -hmm. you need to remember this written after the moment. Freedom to add what was written. Yeah, I would say that. Remember this written after the moment that it was there was this freedom that was created to, to write this. So the third and fourth generations, it's it's basically saying I've inherited my father's sins. But by Deuteronomy, they've changed it because our Sunday school lesson next week right. is I will punish the fathers for their sins and the children for their sins and not each other's. And they take away the generations. And that's just in Deuteronomy when he repeats all this stuff. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then, and, and I don't think they say it again in Leviticus, you know, because they're always piggybacking off of each other. So th this, this is a, I don't, I don't want to demean it, but at the same time, it's a, you, it's a recognition that you inherit your father's sins. <clears throat> the, the numbers really were not necessarily that important. Now, the, the fascinating thing, when you look at the 20th century, that thousandth generation, right, that becomes a huge discussion in the 20th century because at this point, we've got to be close to a thousand generations mm -hmm. from this, right? So, so this was, and, I, and I'm saying this academically, not faith-based. When you get to the book of Revelation, for example, there's a conversation that the fundamentalists used <clears throat> where the generations mattered. Like this group of people are going to be saved. This group of people are not. This group of people are going to be taken up. This group of people are not. Um, the problem with this is the, the revelator of John is not trying to tie this to Exodus. But we did in the 20th century. Um, in our infinite wisdom. In, in the Hebrew, <laughs> because we know so much. That's right. right. The, the Hebrew world could care less about the second coming. Uh, they're still waiting for, for the, the first for the first one. Because if you think about it, for them, it's it's not the, the Mashiach is this hero, right? It's not the Messiah. It's <clears throat> the Messiah was going to re relieve them of their pain and, their, and suffering from the empire that was in charge of them. So that changes throughout their history. Mm -hmm. So whether it's Babylonian, uh, Syrian, uh, Canaanite, even Egyptian in some cases, regardless of who was in charge of them, uh, that's what the Messiah was going to take them out of. Jesus does not take them out of the Roman Empire. That's, that's a big problem. So, so the numbers, it's a great question, Karen. The, the numbers for them are more like catchphrases or like a really long time or uh, you're, you're going to have this happen again. My favorite example of this <clears throat> is this when they decide to have a king. And... Uh, Samuel comes to God and says, look, the people want a king. Everybody else has a king. We should have a king. And he says, God says, no, you don't need a king. I'm your king. And they're like, uh, no. no, we still need a king. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so, all right. So Samuel, here, here's how it's going to be. Well, uh, uh, I'll, 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 I'll tell you who to choose. Well, the people tell Samuel, this is who I want. We want Saul. Well, so Samuel goes to Saul. God says, I don't necessarily understand this. This is, and God says, sure, let him have it. But just so you know, when we make Saul king, this, 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 this and happen. this is all going to happen to you. And it's the first time that you see a curse 
upon the people in the name of God. <laughs> this is a it's a it's a normal formulaic process that the Hebrew culture does because remember it's always being written after the fact, yeah, not as it's happening. So, uh, so this this conversation is pretty deep, um, in the sense that it was written with a lot of freedom. Um, most historians will tell you the ones that write the history are the winners. Yeah. yeah. You know, this is, these are not winners. <laughs> this is why this is very unique and strange. <clears throat> Did that help? Yes. Okay, so I got to go back to this, these tribe things, because I really want you all to understand this. So like Sally and I keep alluding to, these tribes that are mentioned are the descendants of him. You know, Noah's boy who, who, who gets cursed for seeing Noah naked. Really, that's what happens. Uh, so he goes out and they, all of their descendants go out. But we also have to deal with Ishmael. Uh, Ishmael is, uh, his descendants are out there. So most, I don't want to say most, that's not a safe statement. I would say the majority of scholars would say that Canaan are related to Ishmael. Okay. And that uh, the Jebusites have a tie to him, and then these others are somewhere in between. The, the goal here is to connect them. They were not godly. We are, even though they were, <laughs> right? Well, they may not have been by that time. <laughs> That's exactly right. <clears throat> well, they were obviously not worshiping one god. Yeah. That's the, the goal here. The goal here is to say, these tribes that have connections to us, our cousins, yeah. our cousins have no longer continued to worship one God. So therefore they must be punished. And not only do they have to be punished, we have to make sure that they get back in line with God and only worship one God. You're supposed to kill them all. It won't make any difference what they do. Right. And, and then notice that they do this really weird thing that says, but when you're, your soldiers marry them yeah. and they have kids, make sure that the kids don't worship multiple gods. Does that make sense now? Yeah, but what he says is, so your your those daughters would corrupt your sons. Right. Yeah. So what else They're is happening worried here? about the kids yet. No, your daughters are going to corrupt the sons. This is a rabbinical women or the devil moment. <laughs> I'm totally not joking. <laughs> this is this is the this is the beginning of the end for me. This is the uh, this is Levitical priest saying, "Listen, the women are going to guide the guys into worshiping false gods again." And you you remember how this works, guys? You remember Rachel? She did this to Jacob, and he was so good. That's what this tie is here, um, and it's going to be a problem. Obviously, the Levitical priests are seeing them do this. You see how this is working? Yeah. But it's not the women's fault, right? They're going to blame somebody. Mm -hmm. it makes it easy. Women have no power or authority in this time. Um, so does, does that make more sense? Your cousins, your distant relatives, yeah. mm -hmm. they've fallen off the oh, wagon. God. So we've got to get them back to square one. Remember, the whole goal here in the Hebrew Bible is to connect all of humankind, regardless of what we want to believe. The goal of Torah is to say that we are all children of God, 
and that we have to come back to God at some point in another in our existence. They had to have all been created at the same time, because then what do you do with Adam and Eve and all of their descendants? What about Noah? And then what about <laughs> Abraham? And if, 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 if we're not related to Abraham some way, then, then, God, then God can break promises. And that is exactly the opposite of what the Jewish culture is wanting you to understand. So there's got to be a connection, always, always, always a connection back to God. Um, so hopefully that helps a little bit more. But I love how he says that in verse 16. And when you take wives from among their daughters for your sons, their daughters will lust after their gods and will cause your sons to lust after their gods. Yeah, there's your women or the devil. And the sons aren't that right. <laughs> yes, so I was going to say. The sons are really not that smart, evidently. Um, and not that strong. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then, he, and then he goes into verse 17. Let's just keep going there just because it, it still feeds this idea. You shall not make molten gods for yourselves. Duh. You shall not observe the feast. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. And eating unleavened bread for seven days as I have commanded you at the set time of the month of Abib. For the month of Abib, you went forth from Egypt. This is Pesach, also known as Passover. This is that time when we eat unleavened bread. This is a worship moment. Every first issue of the womb is mine from all your livestock, the drop of male as firstling, whether cattle or sheep, but the firstling of an ass you shall redeem with, uh, with the sheep. If you do not redeem it, you must break its neck, and you must redeem every firstborn among your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You see, you see this, this liturgy being, being created? This is this is worship stuff. These are offerings. These are six days you shall work. But on the seventh day you shall cease from labor. You shall cease, listen to this language, from labor even at plowing time and harvest time. You shall observe the feast of weeks and the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering. Uh, what does Greek say? In what does your say right there? Festival of being gathering at the turn of the year. Okay, yeah, it's pretty close. Uh, 23 times, no, three times a year, your males shall appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations from your path in the larger territory. No one will covet your land uh, when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. Uh, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened at the sac and the sacrifice of the feast of Passover, now they've given it a name, shall not be left lying until morning. The choice first fruits of your soil shall bring you, you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. So now obviously there's temple language, there's no temple. Uh, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. We've already had this conversation. Yes. And the Lord said to Moses, write down these commandments. For in accordance with these commandments, I make a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He ate no bread and drank no water. And he wrote down on the tablets, the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Even though in this repetition, they don't have the things like, do not bear false witness and do not mm -hmm. murder and do not commit so adultery. Your, your, uh, as your neighbor's wife, you know, yeah. commit adultery. <clears throat> left yeah. all that out. Left all that out. But the next part is simplistic. I'll just finish this off so we can get to 35. 
<laughs> so Moses came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, and as Moses came down from the mountain, bearing the two tablets of the, the covenant, Moses was not aware that the skin of his face was radiant since he had spoken with him. Aaron and all the Israelites saw that the skin of Moses' was, face was radiant, and they shrank from coming near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the chieftains in the assembly returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Uh, afterwards, all the Israelites came near, and he instructed them concerning all that the Lord had imparted to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would leave the veil off until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what he had been commanded. The Israelites would see how radiant the skin of Moses' was, face was. Moses would then put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with him again. So this is a little interesting beyond human moment. <laughs> There's a Oh, I'll just I'll, I'll pause before I tell you guys the funny part. <laughs> Anything going through your minds at the moment? Well, for me, kind of coming fast forward, you know, when you've got Christ in your heart, your face displays joy and contentment. Mm -hmm. I there's a <laughs> obviously there's some sort of physical connection to somebody's understanding of being the presence of God. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. There's a there's a technique being ha happening here in this moment. So I'm trying not to be uh pessimistic or cynical i think the word <laughs> cynical to me that they're doing because i i think that i like where you're going karen and um there's a historical problem with this but nothing that keeps us from thinking that way i like this idea that when someone does something in the presence of god you can see it in their face right for us it's jesus when you do things in the name of Jesus, you see it in people's faces and their actions. Yeah. What else is happening? Sally, I already alluded to the fact that there's not really 10 commandments here. There's several, but not 10. It's kind of like if you can just keep these 10 commandments. <laughs> You yes, <laughs> right on the money, Carrie. If we can keep these ten commandments, we might be doing okay. Yeah, that's that is a hundred percent what the priests are writing here. Because we know, I know you can't remember all of them. Uh -huh. <laughs> I think the the tagline at the end there should be, and please don't throw these on the ground this this time. <laughs> That's that's uh, yeah, right there yeah. in verse 28. The 28b should say, God tells Moses, do not throw these on the ground this time. <laughs> well, he got us a little big in right up there at the 3401. Yeah. When he talks about the tablets, which yeah. you shattered. Which by you the way. shattered, by the way. Good job there, Moses. <laughs> Anything else? 
So let's talk about the, the radiance of Moses' face. In the Mesopotamian culture, everything is played by brightness. It's the reason that calves are made out of gold. Mm. When the sun hits it, it shines bright. You know, everything's reflective. When you go and you look at archaeological things, the things that have survived are pieces of glass that mirror or reflect light. There's this idea of the other gods being radiant in all of their statues and their idols. In this culture, God is replacing them. You see how that works? It's a, it's a transference. God is saying, no, you don't need to worship Baal. You, you have me now. And when you have me, which is why I said here, your idea was great. And I was trying not to be cynical. But there's, a, there's an idea here that says, when you have God in your life, the radiance of God is brighter than these other gods. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Moses, the rest of his existence, becomes not an idol, but the presence of God that's so bright for human faces that he has to literally put a veil on. Mm -hmm. That's that's a it's a good way to come combat the other gods as well as to combat uh, Moses being the precipice or the voice box of God, even though Aaron speaks the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a there's absolutely that, and then there's this countercultural thing that's also happening. I think in my commentary uh, reflects the divine radiance in the way the golden calf episode begins. Yeah. So the even the Jewish scholars talk a little bit about that. Um, yes, Larry. Can we back up just a little bit? Um, yeah. I don't know if I wasn't paying close enough attention or if I misheard. Did you say something about uh, a number other than 10 in the commandments? Yeah, so in this retelling of the 10 commandments story, there's not 10 commandments. He, he just tells them you got to write down the 10 commandments. But in this retelling here, uh, starting when you say retelling, what are you saying? Retelling all of chapter 34 from, from chapter 20. So, chapter 20 gives us the original 10. Okay, and then chapter 34 has a retelling of these commandments, and then kind of like an editorial comment made with it, like when we take over these places and your sons marry these women. Then these women are going to bring in these false gods. And then starting right, really, uh, at verse 17, it, you've got no other god before us, you know, so don't make idols. There's idols. Uh, the Ten Commandments does not talk about Passover, but here they do. Uh, and then uh, from 19, verse 19, uh, verse 19 and 20 is talking about offerings, which again is not talked about in the 10. The 20, verse 21, uh, you will hold, hold the Sabbath holy. I mean, you could, you could make that argument. 22 uh, through 23 is again another worship thing. Uh, then 24 is... Uh, 
no coveting. You're not supposed to covet people's land. And then the rest of this is this really has nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. And then at the end of uh, at the end of this passage, uh, in verse twenty eight. Uh, it says, and there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, he ate no bread, drank no water, and wrote, wrote down on the tablets the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So all of 34 is this editorial comment about the Ten Commandments. Does that help? Yes. Okay. And then, therefore, when he comes down with this radiant face, he has spent more time with God physically than any other human being at this point, which would make sense then why he was radiant forever, right, ever in sense, which then says that when you're in the presence of God, it'll be a bright, shiny, radiant-like person, you know, so... Does Jesus being the light of the world tie in here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Okay. Gospel of John writer starts to say Jesus is the light of the world. No one comes to the Father except through him. Uh, John John absolutely ties into this idea that God, that Jesus is uh, the, the bright, radiant aspect of God. Absolutely. That would be hard to argue not. <clears throat> Well, uh, I hesitate to start chapter 35. Um, I feel like I should, just for the sake of time, at least uh, till we get to verse. Well, let's, let's just see how far we go. I'm a little nervous about starting it because the, really what ends up happening is, is that you get back to this. Okay, now we got the Ten Commandments back. <clears throat> Moses has shattered them and rebuilt them. Now we got now we got to get to work. Now we got to build the tabernacle. So between chapters thirty five to forty, you have this uh, this idea that this, the tabernacle is happening again. And so right here at the very beginning of chapter thirty five, <clears throat> he says to them, he he reiterates this idea of Sabbath, and I, and I got to talk about it for just a little bit. And that might be where we stop. Uh, so it's only the first three verses we're going to focus in on and stop there. Uh, Moses then convoked the whole Israelite community and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. On six days, work may be done, but on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your settlements on the Sabbath day. Uh, so this is different. You can start to see, uh, this is why I was making a big deal out of it, because Jesus keeps happening. It's, just, it's, it's a thing. <clears throat> so by the time that Jesus comes along and he heals somebody on the Sabbath, this is bad, right? Anybody does something on the Sabbath, uh, you should be put to death, is what verse 2 says. This is not 
simple language. This is very direct. This is exactly what it would say in Hebrew. Um, I bet the money changers were working on the Sabbath. Yeah, the money changers and, and see, and the money changers working on the Sabbath is a whole huge conversation there. But but because of them, it, it was okay that they did it because they weren't Jewish. Oh, okay. That's what I should say. They brought them in. Yeah, they, they brought them in. And uh, I think I think what we do after this after this Bible study after we get through Exodus, we're going to go back to Matthew. Um, I, I just the, the more the more I keep getting into this, the more I like Matthew's conversation about this. Um, but the reason I'm even in bringing this up is, is that the Sabbath has to remain holy for this culture. Six days you work, seventh day you do nothing. You hold it holy before God. Um, this contradicts just about 85% of our culture in the United States. We do talk about days off, but it does not mean that you actually take that day off for worship. Um, for them, I think the part that is always rather ambiguous is this that when do you go to worship? Is it on the seventh day? <clears throat> when you take your birth offerings, do you, you can't do it on the seventh day. You, so you've got to, you've had to have had your burnt offerings done before Sabbath. So your six days in, in some argument has to be everything done so that on the seventh day, it is completely devoted towards God. I don't have to cook. Notice it says that here it's even, you shall kindle no fire. Can't even start a fire on the Sabbath because that's work. I don't remember reading that one anywhere else. I know. I don't remember reading it here either. You know, it's a, it's a thing. And once you get to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, they talk about it over and over and over again. Yeah. Keep the Sabbath holy. Keep the Sabbath holy. It just becomes ingrained in their culture, but they never do it. They <laughs> never do it. Like we don't either. Culturally, it's, it's, a, it's a, a phenomenon. And the, and the argument here is simple. God can create the world in six days and seventh day rest. What are you, God? <laughs> you know, this is a problem. Well, I thought it was always kind of interesting that, especially in the academia world, that professors take a sabbatical every seven years. But usually during that time, they go somewhere else and do research. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not that they're resting. <laughs> it's not do. that they're resting. <clears throat> That's what I'm going to do during mine. You know, I'm, I'm going to do research during mine. But I, I would suggest that sometimes the, the most important thing for people is, is that when you take this rest, it's supposed to be bringing you closer to God. Right? So if I'm <clears throat> taking this time away from my normal activities, it needs to be devoted towards God somehow, some way. I think the struggle that I have is this when people take sabbaticals that it's like a three-month vacation, yeah. right? Like, and, and it's paid for. Like, so when I, for example, I'm just using me as an example because we're in the process of figuring out how that works here. Like, put in that I would do a, a four-week sabbatical every five years. And the goal was that I would be writing my dissertation during that four weeks. That's not going to happen, obviously. So now it has to change gears. What is what is the purpose of a sabbatical? 
um, it's not a Sabbath. That's, mm -hmm. that's extremely important to articulate. Um, so then what, is, what does the preacher do for Sabbath? Well, this day off, Friday should be to do nothing. If I'm supposed to be mirroring what the Bible says, obviously I fail at that. <laughs> you know, I try, I try, but just life happens. You know, you just, you can't avoid that. Now, the biblical world would say that every one of us takes Sabbath at a different time. And therefore, the holes will always be filled. Mm -hmm. If the preacher takes Friday off, then the congregants should take Saturday off, right? Or vice versa, so that, so that everyone has a day, but there's never a hole. Now, the problem that we run into is, is that that also never made sense. So the culture themselves said, well, we start Sunday through Friday, and Saturday we take off. But they didn't have days like we do today. So it's just like, so this day to this day, whatever six days from now, six sunsets, that seventh sunset, we're not supposed to be working. This is the problem. So it's a, I love, I love how they iterate, reiterate this. Moses reiterates this right before they start to build the tabernacle. Uh, we have to work. We have a lot of work to do but you have to take Sabbath holy. Otherwise, be killed. And that's up to you guys. If you want to die, it's up to you. It's not my problem. You're the one that chose to work on the, on the Sabbath. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great analogy here and there, that, the idea of the academics, every seven years or in between five and seven years, they take this sabbatical and they do research. I... And, and they use and the problem with this is they use the word sabbatical, which is the, 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 the direct result of the word Sabbath. Um, and it's, it's a weird, weird phenomenon. Because <laughs> I don't look at sabbaticals as supposed to be time off. It's supposed to be a re, reimagining of what your call is. You know, that's really what it's supposed to do. To be in the wilderness. <laughs> I like the idea of being in the wilderness for 40 days. Something about that to me makes sense. If I'm going to take a sabbatical, I need to be in the wilderness, listening to God's voice, fasting, whatever. You know, if I'm if I'm being really hardcore about it, maybe it means that I study, listen to God's voice in another realm of academia. So, uh, so yeah, that's a good good statement. Any other comments? We'll stop there. The rest of this starts to get interesting. Okay, we'll go ahead and stop recording.